Okay, without much ado, I just want to um, invite um, um, Pastor Kai. All right, well, good afternoon. It's good to see you all. I've, I think I was here about two months ago, uh, something like that, and so just wonderful to have the opportunity to return here and to be able to bring God's Word and, and just delight with you. Really cool to hear uh, Sierra's story, just even if it's for a minute, um, but to hear what God is doing is uh, taking people to different places and love the fact that there's this missions month that you have and a, and a focus on uh, God's work of calling us out, out of ourselves. One of the things, I did college ministry myself for a good, uh, wow, 10, 10 years. Uh, and one of the things about being with college students is it's, it's very easy to kind of get in a little bubble and you forget what's really out there. And one of the big things about a, a month of missions is a way it calls us to come out of ourselves and calls us to, to see beyond uh, perhaps our current situations or see beyond a timeline that goes beyond one semester, right? Um, and to see the world for what it is. So I think it's great that you're spending time uh, as a church reflecting on that, bringing people in who can help bring in some of those key reminders. And I'm glad to be someone who is invited to come and uh, minister during this time with that. You know, one of the common misconceptions about mission work or being on missions uh, is that to be on mission, for some of us, we think of you need to be in a foreign place, right? You need to be at a place where people wouldn't normally go. Be at a place where people don't want to live. Be among people where you will end up being the minority, where you're the foreigner, right? That doesn't really happen for a lot of us, especially uh, if you're here right now in America, United States, you're from the United States, here, you're from the Bay Area originally, and you're going to a school in the Bay Area, or you're just making your life here in the Bay, and you're trying to raise a family in the Bay, how uh, that's not something you're going to feel. And for a lot of us, we then uh, come to the assumption that, therefore, I'm not a missionary. Uh, that makes me someone who's not on mission, because I don't fit those categories of being someone who's the minority or the foreigner in a place that, uh, no, that nobody wants to be at. But here's the interesting thing, especially for, I think, Emerge Berkeley, and, and even for my church, I'm, I'm, I'm from Grace Alameda, uh, just that little island that's right next to Oakland. Um, so being here in the East Bay together, here's an interesting thing to think about. You know, there's a recent real-time data that just came out two months ago uh, talking about the greatest areas in the United States, metropolitan areas, where you're seeing the most people domestically move into and domestically move out to, meaning people who are leaving metropolitan areas to go live somewhere else in the United States and cities where people are moving into from another part of the United States. And so uh, one of the, the key pieces that just came out over the past two months is uh, that the uh, in all of the U.S., out of all the metropolitan areas, the area with the largest amount of people regularly, with the highest rate of people moving out currently to go live somewhere else in the United States is the East Bay Area. Berkeley, Oakland, Alameda, Richmond, every, you name it, Hayward. This whole area is the number one place nobody wants to live at right now in the United States when you think about it. I know y'all chuckle, because some of y'all are like, well, I can't wait to get out of here too, right? And maybe that's how you feel, and that's okay, right? But there's something to be said, right? We are seeing an exodus of people leaving the Bay Area, the East Bay specifically, for all kinds of reasons. Now, some of this is, yeah, 
I don't like living here. Totally understandable, right? Not every place is right for every person. Some of that is because of financial difficulty. It's a really expensive place to live. I hear about the rent that students pay here, and I'm like, that's insane, right? Uh, there's uh, cost of living. There's issues of just standard of living. There's issues of crime and safety that are big ones here in the Bay Area, right? Uh, all kinds of reasons why people want to leave. Understandable things that we shouldn't, I don't think we should persecute anyone about them or feel, feel like there's something wrong with a person wanting to leave. But you have to embrace the fact then that as a church, this church that you attend right now, you are at a church where nobody wants, in a city where nobody wants to live in. In an area of the United States where everyone is trying to get out of. Let that sink in. Does that make That's a sobering reality, right? And I don't say that. That's not just an eMERGE issue. That's a Grace Alameda issue, right? That's an issue for every church in the East Bay right now. People don't want to live here or cannot afford to live here or whatever the reasons are. Take that piece. So you're talking about we live in a place where nobody wants to live, a place where people don't want to go. Sounds like mission work, right? You take the next piece. And you say, well, here's the other, other reality that we deal with as the church in the Bay Area. That we are in a place that generally does not consider the church to be a friend, but an enemy. That's not, I'm not crying out victimhood or anything. I'm simply stating the general reality that when people think of the church here in the East Bay, they do not see the church as an ally or a blessing or a benefit to their communities as much as in many cases. They see it as a place of hate, a place of bigotry, a place of offensiveness. I'm not saying that that's something that's going on here or at my church or anywhere. This is just what's been associated in light of everything that's going on in our world and in our country, right? And if you, a lot of you I can tell already are way too young to remember these times, but if you just go back five decades ago, four decades ago, people saw the church as the place to have moral teaching, to have uh, good values, and a place where they, whatever, uh, pastors were well-respected and, um, you know, had a say in different things. That's the complete opposite in the culture we live now. Not just here in the Bay Area, a culture that has shifted all throughout the United States, but specifically really in the Bay Area. Again, I'm not saying this so you feel bad for Pastor Garfield, for me. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm simply just saying that the tide has shifted and the way people see what the church does, why the church exists and why it's here, has flipped 180. And so now we're in a culture where not only do we not fit in, but we're seen as backwards or behind the times and people view us in opposition rather than in partnership. And so, in a lot of ways, now we are also that foreigner who are living, people who are living in a foreign place, people who don't fit in, and in fact, at times, are at odds with the world around us. The exact way in which you would think about what type of person? A missionary. And so that's kind of the thing that I want us to be thinking about, is that as a Christian, who lives in the East Bay, you're living in a far more foreign place than you realize if your faith is at the forefront of your identity and who you are. If you view the world through the lens of faith in Jesus Christ, 
then this place will seem more foreign and will seem like a mission field than you realize. And you are, in light of that, called to be a missionary more than you realize in your everyday life. And so if we are actually, as you are here in Berkeley, California, that you are living on, in essence, a mission field, and if you are a part of a church, right, in Berkeley, California, or the East Bay, then you are called in many ways to live as a missionary here because it's not going to be very comfortable or very easy and to recognize and own that. Now, the beautiful thing about the Scriptures is very often a lot of the situations we find ourselves in, and the one I'm even describing right now, is not foreign to the people of God. That there is a whole history of God's people who have lived and gone through particular situations of all kinds that we can look to and say, how is the Lord at work in that? And how might, me, how, how might there be a pattern of life in which God has called us into that we might follow in light of Jesus. And so that's the beautiful thing about our passage today. Jeremiah 29 gives us a pattern for how to think about what it means to be called and to live and dwell in a place where you are the minority, you are the foreigner, and you are living in a foreign land where, frankly, none, no one else really wants to be at right now. And so I want us to reflect on two ways in light of this passage for us to think about how to live here right now where God has you. First is to think about, and to, the first thing is to live where God has us, the importance of just living where God has us in this time. And then secondly, is to seek the welfare of the places in which we are called to live. So first to just live where God has us, and then secondly, to seek the welfare of the place we're called to live in. So let me just give you some background of the book of Jeremiah as we think about what it means to live where God has us. In the book of Jeremiah, what's happened is, uh, the people of Israel, they've been conquered by this foreign nation, Babylon. Babylon has come in and just wiped, wiped them out, and uh, they, are, they are the reigning power of the time. They've conquered Israel, and what the king did, Nebuchadnezzar, as a uh, strategic way of trying to destroy Israel, is not just destroying uh, their, their buildings and their cities and their crops, but also what he did as a strategy was take the key leaders of the city. So the, the most power brokers, whether it was politicians, whether it was uh, artists, whether it was cultural leaders of all kinds, take the intellectuals, taking all of them and deporting them to go live in Babylon, stripping, in essence, the power, the culture, the influence of the people of Israel, of that nation, and forcing them with the hope of assimilating into Babylonian culture. It was, in essence, a form of ethnic cleansing without actually killing them, if that makes sense, right? Because what you're doing is really just trying to strip them of their ethnicity and their culture and their personhood by forcing them to live in a foreign place. Now, remember, we're not talking about a place where, like, you can just travel back and forth anytime you want, right? This is where you are gone and you will never see the rest of your family for generations on end. And so what had happened is Israel has been conquered, they're deported off, and the people that were deported off, all these people that were shipped off and taken and kidnapped, in essence, to go back to Babylon, the Israelites, they would not, uh, once they were in Babylon, they could go and just live there, but what they chose to do was rather than live in the actual city of Babylon, they're the people of God. They're called to stay separate from those who are not the people of God. And so they would be exiles and they would live on the outskirts of the city. They would kind of live on a ring outside of the Babylonian capital and avoid intermingling with the people in it because they were to be set 
apart. And a big part of why they did that was because they had clung to this prophetic hope that they were hearing from various prophets who would come in and say that, hey, Israel, God is going to come. It's going to happen in a couple of years. The reversal is on its way. The rescue is on its way. Very soon, you will be restored and returned to your homeland. You have nothing to fear. And so as they were exiles living on the outskirts, they just clung to this hope and believed that if we can tolerate this for another year or two, the prophets have told us God is coming, God will rescue us, and God will save us. And what we read in this passage in verses 8 and 10 is Jeremiah coming to them and giving them the bad news. Jeremiah is the prophet that they didn't want to hear from because he comes and says, all the other prophets who have said that you're going to be rescued in a couple of years are wrong. They are not hearing from God. You are going to be here for 70 years. 70 years, if you think about it, that's two generations, right? That's not a short time. That's two generations of people who will not live in the promised land, who will not be able to live where they, uh, the land in which they have belonged. Now, that's already a hard pill to swallow for the Israelites, I'm sure, as they're hearing this, as God is saying, you will not get to live here. But here's the more shocking part that's probably the more harder message for them to have heard. Earlier, before that, in verses 5 through 7, God tells them this. He tells the exiles this. He says, God says to them, stop exiling yourselves from society. Stop living on the outskirts of this place. Build your homes here. Plant your gardens here. Marry and raise your families here. Make a life for yourself in Babylon amongst the Babylonians here in this place. Now, there's some cog you have to understand, right, the cognitive dissonance that they have to have for Israel to hear this from their God. Because Israel is God's chosen people. That's what they were told. They were set apart. They were to be a light to the nations. And a light cannot mingle with darkness, right? A light cannot be uh, amongst all these other nations and allowing themselves to intermarry or intermingle, right? Why would you, what God, why would you send us and call us to be amongst these people, these enemies who have captured us, who have stolen us from our homes and our lands, Right? How could God command this? And, and here's the reality is that in verses 4 and 7, the passage tells us, Jeremiah reminds them that remember who it is that has put you in this situation. You may want to blame Babylon for this, but it's me who has put you here. Verses 4 through 7, he reminds them, I am the one who has brought you into exile. I am the one who has given Babylonian the power to conquer you and take you here. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not the Babylonian army, but I have brought you here to a place where nobody is like you, to a place where you have no power or no influence. I have brought you here, God is saying to the Israelites, because there is a distinct calling and purpose that I have in bringing you here and placing you here for such a time as this. Last Easter, um, my church was able to celebrate its 10th anniversary, and it's not a big deal, 
uh, in that, you know, lots of churches go through 10 years, and it's great. But one of the things that uh, I was able to marvel at and reflect on in speaking with a friend was um, there was a member of our church who actually was part of a church that also planted in Alameda the same day 10 years before on Easter Sunday. And um, their church, he was at that church, and after three years, it folded, and he ended up at our church. And he had shared with us how um, just the, the, the weirdness of being celebrating a 10-year anniversary of a church that planted on Easter Sunday on the exact same day that the church he had originally moved to Alameda to be a part of was no longer existent, and yet now he's at a church in Alameda that planted on the exact same day. And for him, in, in a lot of ways, for his own heart, he was sharing how there's something amazing about God's grace in calling him here because of a totally different church to plant on the exact same day and yet ending up at a different church that planted on the exact same day. And for some reason, God has kept this church around, but not that church. And look, I'm not the planting pastor, so I, by no means can I be like, oh, well, look at what I did. I mean, I'm an amazing pastor. I kept it around for 10 years, right? That's not what I'm saying here, and that's not what the person, what my friend, a uh, member of our church was talking about. But we were simply in awe, because the reality is, there really is no perfect rhyme or reason why that one lasted three and we lasted ten. We can't claim ownership of that. It's not like we're more amazing for some particular, God simply called us and has kept us in Alameda. And God willing, we'll be there another ten maybe another 20, so be it. But for some reason, God has kept our church in Alameda for 10 years and called us to be in the East Bay, and we're going to continue on. I'm sure the same has held true for Emerge. There's no reason why any church lasts as long as it does, but only by the grace of God. Let's just be real about that. No church deserves to be around for 50 years, 100 years, 200 years. Right? Nobody can lay claim to that. But it's only because God calls churches to exist. And when they're gone, they're gone because God has called them to go. Now, if you take that reality and that truth, it is God who calls this church to be here right now to worship on this day in this exact place. What does that mean if God does that for the church about you being here right now? And the fact that maybe you haven't been at Emerge for a very long time, or you've been at Emerge for the longest of time. But the reality that if God has you here, then you are distinctly called by God to live here, to dwell here, and to make a life here in this community, and to love and know your neighbors and your church well. Look, I recognize that in this room alone, there are lots of reasons why you are here today. For some of you, it's because the school you go to is right down the street. For some of you, it's because you work and live in this area. For some of you, this has just been your spiritual family for years on yet. And for some of you, you're here simply because randomly, this is the one day you decided to come to church or your friend invited you, right? And also, I recognize that we're all here, and we all have different timelines. Some of us are here for the long run. We love the Bay. We're going to be here in Berkeley, and we're going to be at this church till we die. 
And yet I know also for some of you here, you're counting down the days until you're ready to leave six months from now or however long. But what our passage, at least in Jeremiah, is telling us is that regardless if you see yourself here for six months or for 60 years, if you have an East Bay address, if right now when you go to sleep, you lay your head on a pillow in the East Bay, then God has called you to be here right now and to be present here right now. Right? Just as Israel has been called to live and dwell and be in and among Babylon, not to remain on its outskirts, but to be in and amongst the city and amongst the people, God calls you right now. If you live here and you call this place home for the time being, he calls you to do the same. And not to look where you might be soon, but to simply say, I am here right now. Friends, you are not a tourist and you can never see yourself as a tourist. Tourists go to places, and they use, and they consume, and they get what they can, and then they leave. But God calls us to come and to live and to dwell and to cultivate and to be contributors in this place no matter what your timeline is. And guess what? That's what missionaries do. A missionary never walks into a place and says, how can I get the most out of where I am? How can I use this place for the kingdom of God? That's not a term you would say. But they are there to be with the people, amongst the people, to, to know the people and to love the people. Friends, if you're here for six months, again, maybe you're here just for a semester or maybe you're here for the next 60 years, you are called to be with the people here. That's what it means to live where God has you. And maybe that's what you need to be challenged by today. What does it mean to live here now, called here now, the way that God has placed me here now? So that's what it means to live here. So what is it? So, and that's a hard thing, right? I recognize that that's not an easy thing to do, especially if maybe if you don't like it here or you find it hard to be here. There's circumstances and situations you've gone through where you're just like, I don't really want to be here. I like it here. Right? So how do you do that in a very tough place? How do you do it in a place where nobody wants to be because everyone's moving out? How do you do that in a place that's very, frankly, in a lot of ways, anti-church or anti-Christianity or anti-Jesus? Right? How do you do it in a place that's set against you spiritually, socially, and culturally in so many different ways? And again, Jeremiah gives us a picture of what that might look like, and he says this phrase, to seek the welfare to seek the welfare of the places around us, the places in which God has put us. You know, there's typically two responses you'll see for most churches and how they deal and engage with the world around them. Some churches take Israel's preliminary stance where rather than engaging, they stay on the outskirts, set up camps around the whole place, never to enter in, never to engage, never to deal with those other people, right? They believe that the best thing to do is that the church is to somehow remain separate from everything, to exile itself from the surrounding culture and society. And that might not be a church, that could also be just your heart and the way you view things, the way you view your neighbor, your roommate, or whoever, that we're just going to keep, we're gonna, I'm going to do my thing, they're going to do their thing, and never the two will meet. This passage makes clear that is not the default posture God's people are called to have, right? 
very clear that we are called to enter in, called to engage, called to be uh, in and amongst the people. Now, here's the uh, second part of that, though. So some people choose to disengage and totally be separate. Some churches will do that. And on the other side, you'll find churches who give themselves entirely over and actually end up assimilating, throwing themselves head deep into the whole life of uh, a city, uh, engaging in every single aspect of the culture, dressing up in the way that the culture dresses itself up, and taking on the values and the worldview of the world around it such that it becomes quite clear that there is no difference between walking through a church door or being in the church community, right, than walking and being out there amongst your neighbors, strangers, so on and so forth, right? Where you're allowing the social, socio-cultural, ethical choices of the surrounding culture to inform and determine who you are and who the church is. That is not what God is calling Israel to do here in this passage either. You recognize that, right? Like this passage is not God saying, become just like the Babylonians, do exactly what they do, right? But he simply says, live your life as you would in Israel, but now you do it here in Babylon. And there's other hints at why God is also saying this is not about assimilation or making Babylon become this holy place or this special place. Right? Verse 10, he reminds Israel, Babylon will still be judged. There's still going to be a day in which they will be called to repentance because Babylon is no holy place. Jeremiah didn't call it or see it as a holy place who somehow had better values or better laws or better way of life that should be wholesale adopted. And that's a temptation for the church today is to simply say, well, if the context that we want to reach believes these things, X, Y, and Z, then we as the church should have to adopt X, Y, and Z if we're going to reach this place or this. And the reality is God does not command us to do that. And so how do you navigate that? Where you're, also, you're called on one hand not to pull yourself entirely out of it and at the same time called not to entirely give yourself up. And I think there's a term in the New Testament that helps us understand this and engage this relationship between the city and the culture in which we're surrounded by uh, and, and that we're called to live in and among. And 2 Corinthians 5.20 helps us, I think, define it. I don't know if we have it up there. there we, perfect. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That term ambassador is probably the perfect one. An ambassador is someone who has to live in a country that is not of their origin, not of their allegiance either. But nonetheless, they have a responsibility to understand and to navigate life in the country they are living in, build a bridge between their home country and the country they live in so that there's a relationship that works and that seeks the best for the two places Yet, at their core, the ambassador never forgets where home is, right? At their very heart, they never forget where their home, their identity, and their allegiance lies. And so what that means is if you're a Christian here today, you live with attention. You are going to be called to live with a tension in your heart that you will have to struggle through from time to time. 
attention that says you are not called to pull yourself entirely out and just do Christian things with Christian people all the Christian time, right? And at the same time, it also means you are not supposed to just give yourself over to the values and the way of the world, hook, line, and sinker, because heaven is your home and God is your king. And so the way forward, the way in which we engage, the way in which we can um, navigate that tension, I believe, is the phrase that Jeremiah gives us in verse 7, where we seek the welfare of the city, to seek the welfare of the place in which God has called us to live. That term welfare, uh, it's, a, it's a very heavy, like, rich term which means peace and prosperity. The Hebrew is a term you'll probably hear, shalom. You've heard that word before. To seek the shalom, comprehensive, holistic, full-fledged fulfillment of all of society. And so what that means is if you're seeking the shalom or seeking the welfare of the place where God has you, it means you're not standing in judgment or condemnation over a place. Standing over it, staying away from it, and going, I can't wait for this place to go to hell in a handbasket to burn. Nor do you look at a place and go, well, I can't wait to get the most out of it, to use it, to uh, make it a place where I can just make my money, get my education, and then get out of here. But we seek the flourishing, the welfare, the shalom, the peace the prosperity of our neighbors and our communities and our cities, all in a way that will point to the God who has created all things, to the God that has called you here, to the God that has placed these cities and give them their homes. It means that rather than being self-seeking and self-serving in our posture where we demand our rights over others, we are called instead to sacrificially love and engage, and give our lives over for a place that may not always love us back. It means we don't walk with pride or contempt at a place, but with humility and grace, desiring and looking for the places in which we can serve. How might we bless? Where we identify and stand against evil and injustice, and we can do that with People who don't agree with us spiritually, but nonetheless, we can seek good in that way. And yet, nonetheless, still at the same time, look at the unbelieving neighbor, someone who may not agree with us spiritually, and still say, you need Christ. And I desire for your repentance and faith in Jesus. That you can do the two at the same time. That's seeking welfare. That's your call. Here in Berkeley, you understand that? You are a missionary to Berkeley in that way, to seek the welfare of Berkeley or the East Bay or wherever you're coming from today in that way. Is it hard? Yes. Is it crazy? Absolutely. Is it foolish? Totally. Because the reality is you can live in a whole host of places where this is so much easier, right? Places where they love Christians. Places where they'll go, well, I would love to go to your church, right? I can't wait to believe what you believe, right? Places where everyone wants to live because it's perfectly safe, perfectly beautiful, perfectly whatever. I always joke, my wife is from Irvine, California in Southern California. Some of you, I can already see you're smiling. It's like that place is like 
Pleasantville, per, right? Like, I've never seen a homeless person there. I've never seen a crazy person there. Never seen any crime there, so on and so forth. It's also the last place I would ever want to live. And I tell her that all the time because it's not real to me, right? It just isn't. But I say that in the reality of, right, even if we, for some reason, ended up there, we'd be called to serve and love in that place. And right now, you're here, and you're a missionary here then. How is it possible to do all this? And this is where, if we're going to leave with anything and have a crux of anything that we can take home and say, well, I'm excited to think about this. I'm excited to think about how do I serve? How do I love? How am I a missionary here? But how am I going to do this? There's, I, I'm confused, and um, there's so many ways in which I want to do this, but this neighbor is hard. My roommate's difficult. Um, this situation I find myself in is, is so hard. And so I want to leave you with this, and this is perhaps the key of all of it, the power, the um, strength, the perseverance, everything you're going to need to be a missionary here or to be a missionary everywhere, anywhere, to be on this journey rests in this one truth and reality, that our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose very name was praised by the angels in heaven, that he himself left the glories and the divinities of heaven to come and move to earth to be with us. That he would become a missionary to us. And he lived and he mixed and he mingled with people who misunderstood him, who had nothing in common with him. In fact, very often he was accused of being with the wrong people all the time. And those very same people, all of them, would judge him and persecute him. And yet he still sought their welfare. So much so that he gave his life for them on the cross while they were still his enemies, while they would still gaze on him and laugh at him and spit on him and mock him, that they were the joy set before him as he climbed the cross on Calvary. And by grace he gave of himself over to the people of the very places he walked in. Jerusalem, Samaria, and beyond. And in giving of his life, he becomes the head and establishes what is now the body, the church, to carry out and carry on the very thing he established as the first missionary from heaven to earth. 2,000 years ago. And friends, we as the church, Emerge, Grace Alameda, wherever you're at, we are called to continue forth by his spirit, out of grace through faith for the people of Berkeley and Oakland and Alameda and the East Bay and beyond. He gave his life for you while you were still his enemy so he might call you to be here at Emerge Berkeley to be one community, one church, and one mission. You know where you're at right now? It seems very ordinary. I get it. Chairs, TVs, floor, all this stuff seems so ordinary. This is the embassy of heaven. You are all ambassadors right now. And this, friends, is the consulate. It's the embassy of heaven. 
and we are called to seek the welfare of the East Bay. This is your calling. This is what God has given you. To gather in love and to be on mission where God has you right now in this time and place. And my prayer for you, for my church, and for all churches who are like-minded here in the East Bay is that we would continue in faithfulness on mission as one body of Christ, as the kingdom, to God's glory by faith in Jesus alone. And I pray that you're a part of that and you want to be and you seek the welfare of the places in which you live. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that we can be here to um, be the embassy of heaven, that we can be the ambassadors by which you have sent us to be, to come and to be in your presence and to rejoice uh, because you are good. And because, Lord, uh, there's no reason why we should have this calling. There's no reason why we deserve to stand here. And yet, Lord, you love us so and you desire us to be here. So we praise you and thank you for that truth. Uh, Lord, we ask that now you uh, lead us into this time of uh, praise and response and, um, and partaking of your supper. And uh, give me thanks, Lord, for all the ways in which you're doing that. <sighs> Lord, may, may our hearts burn for the East Bay. May our hearts burn for Berkeley, for the campus, for the city, and for beyond. Because, Lord, that's where you call us, and that's where you have us. We thank you, Lord, uh, for Jesus makes it possible all this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.